Well, as we look around the world today, obviously this has been a crazy year. I've said that so many times. And there's probably a lot of words that you can use to describe how this year has gone. It's a lot of words that you can apply to the events that you have seen and what we have observed and heard. There is one word we probably wouldn't use to describe the world around us, and that is the world peace. There is not peace right now. We don't have peace politically. In fact, as the year goes on and on, it seems like things get crazier and crazier. And just as you think things couldn't get even crazier, it actually does. And we are actually in a point, obviously, with the events of this past week and the passing of the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and even, as I have read from the news, even threats from people on the left to start rioting if the Republicans and the Senate, uh, the President and the Senate, try to push through a new uh, Supreme Court justice before the um, election. And that's amazing because what we have been seeing is a lot of rioting and looting and violence throughout the nation. And only recently have we seen both sides finally come to an agreement that it's bad, that it's wrong. And now I'm reading about threats of increased violence if we don't follow a certain set of protocol. But as we see the world continuing to fight, as we see division, as we see hostility, we ought to be reminded as believers that we, as believers, enjoy peace that the world can never understand. We have a peace, and it is the greatest peace anyone could ever want. It is the greatest peace that anyone could ever ask for. And we not only have the greatest peace anyone can ever ask for, but that peace that we have should make a difference to us in terms of how we live day to day, and particularly how we prepare for the spiritual war. And it is a peace that can only come through the gospel. And so this morning's message, we are continuing in this series on the armor of God. And I'm thinking back a year ago when I first became the pastor here at this church. You guys remember Bruce McLean? Bruce McLean, obviously our Carb C representative. He comes down and visits us um, when he can. Obviously, he has not been able to with all that's been going on this year. But I remember I told him my plan to teach through Ephesians. And he told me that when he taught through Ephesians, it was 55 messages. And he had spent um, at least 10 weeks in the armor of God. And I remember hearing that, scratching my head, going, no, I'm not going to need 10 weeks for the armor of God. Well, as I'm going through the armor of God, yeah, I am going to need 10 weeks. So I totally get it. Um, but this is very important, and each of these elements, each of these pieces of armor that Paul mentions to us are so vital. And there's a lot of overlap between a lot of these pieces, a lot of these concepts, especially when we think theologically about what this means in the Bible and how it's to help us. But each one brings a different truth that we must own in our heart, that we must own as we walk in our lives day to day, as we consider how to glorify God in this battle. And so this is the armor of God, part six. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter six, verse 15. And our purpose this morning is to understand how the gospel of peace has prepared us for spiritual war how the gospel of peace has prepared us for a spiritual war, and the outline is going to be very simple. We're going to examine the gospel of peace from two angles so that we may equip it for the spiritual war. But as we go in, back into Ephesians, I want to take us again to the beginning of this section on spiritual warfare, which started in verse 10. I'm going to do this each time just so that we have a big picture view of the context of the spiritual war. Paul, starting in verse 10, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And this right here is the summary command of this entire section from verses 10 through 20. But he tells us how to do that. He says, verse 11, Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And so we see there not only how we are to be strong, but also why we are to be strong, which is to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then we see the truth in verse 12 about this spiritual war, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world 
forces of this darkness against these spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then we see in verse 13, Therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And so that is the verse that transitions into the elements of the armor of God. And so in verse 14, we see, stand firm, therefore. That is the main command from verses 14 to 15. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We see the first two elements, what we have covered the last couple of weeks. And then verse 15, what we're going to cover today is the third element, which says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then in verse 16 is going to be the next major commandment. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so that brings us now to our lesson for this morning. And as I mentioned, there are two angles in which we're going to look at the gospel of peace. And the first one is going to be the role of the gospel of peace the role of the gospel of peace. And we go back to verse 14. We are reminded that these first three elements have the word having before them. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that word having is there to show us that these are actions that we must take before we stand firm. These are actions that we must have prepared. We do this before we stand firm. And remember that Paul is imagining the Roman soldier. As he is writing this, he's actually in Rome awaiting his trial before Caesar, probably chained to a Roman soldier who's watching over him. And he's looking at the Roman soldier. He is observing the various pieces of armor. And the first three that he mentioned are the last two that we looked at the last couple of weeks and what we're going to look at today. But as we look at verse 15, we remember it says, Stand firm, therefore, and verse 15 says, Having shod your feet. Now, what does it mean to shod your feet? Well, the meaning of this is really to bind up or to fasten under. And the Roman soldiers at that time, they wore very, very heavy sandals. In fact, the soles of their sandals were typically about three-quarters of an inch thick. So there was multiple layers of leather that was there. But not only did they have these leather soles, but they also had these hollow-headed hobnails um, underneath. So they had the, these hobnails underneath that was fastened to the soles, and the point of those nails was that they can have firm footing. So that as they are defending themselves, they were, are able to stand their ground without being pushed back. And in fact, the modern analogy might be a football player wearing cleats out on the football field. You know, you want to put something on your feet that allows you to stand firm, that prevents you from slipping and sliding. And this is also, as I mentioned, the third step of readiness here. Um, before we get to verse 16, and Paul's going to talk about all the items that he has to take up. But having shod your feet, so this is to lace up this, these sandals. These, these sandals had these ties, the, the straps that you would pull up halfway up your shin and tie them around your shin. So this very much has in mind the sandal, the foot sandals that these soldiers wore, these heavily, uh, really heavily armored foot sandals. But it says to shod your feet specifically with the preparation, with the preparation. Now, this is not what we would expect to read. We would expect to read having shod your feet with some sort of footwear. We would expect to read having shod your feet with some sort of theological term, but here it says with the preparation. Now the word preparation, it's not all that different from what we understand it today. It's to prepare. It's to be ready. It's this idea that you are made ready for a task. Okay, so you're shodding your feet. You're making it prepared. You're making it ready. But to read the rest of this verse, it's to shod your feet with the preparation, and not just with the preparation, but the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so that brings up at least a few questions. One, how does that preparation relate to the gospel? Or how does the gospel relate to that preparation? Does it prepare your feet 
for the gospel? In other words, are we saying here that this preparation is in order to prepare you to give the gospel? Or does it mean that our feet somehow get prepared by the gospel? That our feet are prepared by the gospel? And obviously, we also have to look at that term peace and try to figure out where does that play into this statement. Well, let me take you to a couple of verses that are automatically thought of by many people when they think of this section. So in argument for this idea that we are to be prepared to give the gospel, people will go to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, this is when Isaiah, talking about the Messiah who's going to come, says this, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. And of course, the word gospel, it means good news. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And so we see here, we see the mention of feet, we see the mention of good news, and we see the mention of peace. And of course, we know Paul would reference this verse in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, verse 15, he says this, How would they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. It is a reminder to us that when we do give the gospel, the gospel is intended as good news. The gospel is intended not just as any good news. It is the best great news anyone can possibly receive. But is that what this proclamation is about? Are we saying that our feet are to be prepared for the giving of the gospel? Well, the argument against that is the main command in verse 14 that says to stand firm. And if you remember the prior three verses leading up to this that we just read about, talks about us defending ourselves against the schemes of Satan that we are defending ourselves against the demon realm, against the forces of wickedness. So this picture here, while certainly we always must be ready to give the gospel, we always want to look for opportunities to share the gospel. In context here, the main force of what Paul is getting at is to be ready to defend yourself in the spiritual war. So this is a defensive posture that is being described. In fact, the word stand firm shows up three times going back to verse 10. So we are to stand firm. We are in this defensive posture. And the idea that our feet are being shod and this vision, that, this visual that we have these sandals with these nails that dig into the ground help convey that idea of defense. But when we think about defense, how is it that the gospel of peace provides defense? How is that possible? Well, let's take a look at just the other sections in Ephesians that talk about the gospel. Going back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we read this. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so we see here the gospel of our salvation. The gospel is what brought us salvation. The gospel was the message of truth. And the gospel was what we believed in order to become disciples of Christ. And it says here, upon believing, we were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we see here in Ephesians 1.13, the gospel is clearly the good news that we are to share, the good news that was shared with us that led us to salvation. And the gospel is something that each and every one of you should be able to share. It is a very basic message, this idea that we have a holy God and we are unrighteous and cannot stand before Him in judgment. We are unrighteous. That's what we talked about last week, that we are unrighteous. And the only way that we could be made righteous was not by any of our own works. The only way we could be made righteous was by the work of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. And so when Jesus came, we want people to understand that Jesus Christ came for a specific purpose, for a specific reason. He didn't come just to be a spiritual leader. He didn't come simply to be someone that we modeled our lives after. That certainly is true, but his main purpose was to come so that he would die on the cross and pay for the sins of you and me. 
And so the gospel is that simple message of helping people understand that they need Jesus Christ. There is no other way to eternal life. And that there is a consequence for unbelief. There is a consequence for rejecting the gospel. There is a consequence for not recognizing who Jesus Christ is and why he came. That if we do not confess that he is Lord, if we do not repent of our sins and believe in him, that we have judgment awaiting us, and that judgment will be eternity in the lake of fire. And so in order to bring the good news, you want people to understand that bad news first, where they're headed, the fact that the wrath of God is upon them. And so this is the message that we responded to. And after you share that, you call for them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, the resurrection is a promise to us that we too will be resurrected. But also in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul writes this to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul is making the point there that through the gospel, salvation didn't just come to Israel. Salvation didn't just come to the Jews. Salvation also came to Gentiles. That the good news of salvation was for everyone who believes. And that we who believe, we are not simply saved, but we are made fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. We are now in the household of God. We are now children of God. He is our blessed Father. That is why when we go to pray, we pray to Him, not simply as God, but we can pray to Him as Father, because He loves us as our Father. And then going forward a little bit to Ephesians 6, 19, and we'll get there in a few weeks, but Paul talks about prayer, and he requests this prayer for himself in verse 19, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So Paul's prayer request to the Ephesians, what he wanted the Ephesians to pray on his behalf was that he would be bold, that he would open his mouth and voice the mystery of the gospel, communicate the mystery of the gospel. And we too should be praying for boldness as well. And let me just remind you, in this day and age where people always want you to speak in a very gentle way and very kind and very loving, and, and I agree that those things are good and fine, but speak the truth with boldness. Speak the truth not as a suggestion. Speak the truth because you know it is true. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is sitting at the right hand of God, and it is only through Him that you will find salvation. It is only because of His works that you can have your sins forgiven. And so Paul here talks about the boldness that, in which he can speak forth the mystery of the gospel. But now let's talk about the word peace. So we've talked about the gospel, the word gospel, and we understand that that is the message of salvation. We understand that that is the message we have been called to share with unbelievers that has been shared with each of us. But when we think about the word peace, I'm going to take you back to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 18. This will be a little bit of a review of what we learned many weeks ago, when we, many months ago at this point, when we covered this passage, but what Ephesians chapter 2 gets into is this, that when peace was proclaimed to us, we had peace in two different ways. We had peace with God the Father, of course, but we also had peace with one another. The salvation that God provided us through His Son, Jesus Christ, provided us with peace with one another, and specifically in this context, peace between Jews and Gentiles. And that was amazing when you think about Old Testament history going all the way back to the beginning, that the Jews were called to be separate from Gentiles, that they were God's people, the Gentiles weren't, that the Jews were the keepers of the covenant, they were the keepers of the temple, they were the keepers of the law, and Gentiles, for the most part, were ignorant of God's promises, His law, His commandments, His prophecies. 
but that barrier had been raised. And so as we go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, we read, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Right there, you already see the hostilities, the, the condescending remarks from the Jews to the Gentiles, simply referring to them as the uncircumcision. This circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. That is the situation for all Gentiles prior to Christ. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who are far off, talking about Gentiles who are far from God, have been brought near, have been brought near and into the household. But as we read on, verse 14, we read, for he, this is Jesus, he himself is our what? Peace. Jesus Christ is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. That means we were enemies of God. We we're enemies of each other by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself, in Christ, Christ himself might make two into one new man, thus establishing peace. It's talking about two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And by the way, when I talk about Jews and Gentiles, that's everyone. That is everyone. And Paul here is saying that Jesus Christ, by his work, he took those two groups and made them one glorious new man. And that is what we represent as the church. We are to re represent to the world this one glorious new man in Christ. There is no longer a distinction in terms of those of us who have put our faith into Jesus Christ. And then continue on, verse 16, he also writes this, and, and that Jesus might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. So it's not just bringing us together, it's bringing us in peace with God. So that we might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity, putting to death the fact that we were enemies of God. And that right there is the biggest problem that all unbelievers have. It is the biggest problem that we had before hearing the gospel and responding to it. We were enemies of God. We were absolutely unrighteous before God. And verse 17, he quotes the Old Testament to say that he came and preached peace. He preached peace to those who were far away, referring to us as Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, referring to Jews. So Jesus Christ, he preached peace. This is the content of the gospel. It is peace to both those who are far and those who are near. Last week, we talked about righteousness, and I said that your greatest problem before God was that you are unrighteous or you were unrighteous prior to responding to the gospel. So if righteousness was the reason why you needed the gospel, peace is the outcome that comes from the gospel. Peace is what we needed as the outcome of the gospel. And verse 18, for through him, through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And right there in that verse 18, we've got the full trinity on display. In Christ, we have our access in one spirit to God the Father. That is the wonderful blessing of the gospel. But not only that, but in Ephesians chapter 4, at the very start of Ephesians chapter 4, and you remember that Ephesians is six chapters long. The first three chapters was theology. The last three chapters is focused more upon application. And after sharing the theology of the gospel, the theology of God's plan of redemption, the glorious riches that are involved with God's plan of redemption, the very first commandment, the main commandment that covers all of Ephesians, the central commandment is right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, when Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And how we are to do that? We are to do that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And verse 3, being diligent. In other words, being hardworking. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So we have a unity of the Spirit. 
that exists within the church that we are saved into. There is a unity of the Spirit that exists, but we are to preserve that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And when it says to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, what it is saying is that this unity of the Spirit is bound together. So this idea of bond is this binding together, that that peace is what bounds our unity together. So the gospel that is proclaimed, the peace that comes from it, that peace is what helps preserve the unity of the Spirit that we enjoy. So peace is very much a foundational concept when it comes to the gospel. It is a very important one to understand. And so when we look back at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, once again, the main commandment, stand firm therefore in verse 14 and verse 15 with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So we understand that when we give the gospel, we are proclaiming peace. The outcome of that gospel is peace. And that is meant to prepare our feet. It prepares our feet for defense against the attacks of the evil one. You see, the peace that you have with God, when you recognize that the gospel brought you peace with God, it should help you to recognize that your greatest problem in this life was solved. And you know what? Your second greatest problem is not even close. That is the greatest problem. That is the greatest problem that once that is resolved, all other trials pale in comparison to being at enmity against God. In fact, I can put it this way. If we have peace with God, what else matters? Because in all eternity, that's all we really want. That's all we really want is to have peace with God, to be in His presence for all eternity and to be able to enjoy Him forever and ever. Amen. And so we are preparing our feet. The gospel of peace, this peace prepares our feet to be able to defend ourselves because once we have that peace of God, we can withstand, we can engage in the spiritual war. We can withstand the attacks of the evil one understanding that we have peace with God because that peace with God means that God is not against us. He is for us. That means the Holy Spirit that we have been given, that Holy Spirit strengthens us. It empowers us. It allows us to stand strong. That peace gives us confidence as well. And so that brings us to the second Aspect, the second angle of this gospel of peace that we're going to take a look at. We just looked at the role of the gospel of peace as it relates to this armor. But the second is going to be the implications of the gospel of peace. Because this word peace is so multifaceted. I'm not saying it means all things at the same time. But what I am saying is that when we have this peace with God, there is all kinds of other peace that flows forth from it. Taking a look at Acts chapter 10, this is when Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius. Remember that? This is the first Gentile in the book of Acts who is saved by the gospel. Up until now, the ministry of the gospel had been specifically to Jews, to Israelites. But as we get to chapter 10, Peter is called by the Holy Spirit to witness the gospel to the household of Cornelius. He is a centurion. And verse 34, we read this, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Even as Peter is describing the gospel to Cornelius. He is describing the gospel from the very beginning that they preached peace. So peace is the outcome. It is the content of this gospel. And in John chapter 14, verse 27, we find that this peace is an otherworldly kind of peace. This is not worldly peace. This is an otherworldly peace. This is a divine peace, and it only comes through Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, verse 27 of the Gospel of John, we read this. Verse 27, he says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. What does that mean? That means in the world, the world has its own idea of peace that it may try to sell you on. 
The, the world may try to sell you on merely peace between nations, no wars. It's a noble endeavor. Certainly a thing to want. People may describe peace as being a lack of verbal warfare between people, a lack of division between groups of people. Now we have all kinds of the main issue or one of the biggest issues out there being spoken about is racism that I would just describe as ethnic partiality. So the world will talk about various kinds of peace. In fact, you hear the term often, peace and love, peace and love. That goes all the way back to the 60s. Right? And so this idea of worldly peace, they have their idea of peace, but their idea of peace is a peace without God. In fact, that song sung by John Lennon, Imagine. If you ever read the lyrics to that song, Imagine, I mean, it is tragic when you read the lyrics and think how often Christians will sing that song, thinking it is some sort of godly song. That song is talking about imagine the world without God and how much better the world would be without God, essentially. So the world gives you a kind of peace that is not true peace. But Jesus here says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. This is a different kind of peace that Jesus Christ gives. It's a different kind of peace from the peace of the world. It's going to look different, and it should have a vastly different effect upon us. It should be able to provide us with confidence. It should be able to provide us with comfort. It should be able to strengthen our faith. It should help us to see our current problems in its proper perspective, that when our greatest problem has been taken care of, every other problem pales in comparison. And so the, this is a peace that comes only from the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a peace to exult in trials. Starting in Romans chapter 5, from verses 1 to 5, Romans 5, we read this, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So we know that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1, and that by faith that we entered into this grace by faith in which we stand. At the end of verse 2 says we exult. That means we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That peace gives us hope. That peace gives us something to look forward to. But beloved, when we are lost in despair, when we are feeling the effects of depression, when we are feeling the loss of hope, it's because we have lost track of what our real hope really is. Our real hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our real hope is to be in His presence. But not only that, look at how this hope manifests itself. In verse 3, he says this, And not only this, but we also exult, and that is the word for rejoice. We also exult, rejoice in our tribulations. Wow. When was the last time you exulted in your tribulations? When was the last time when you were going through hard times that you actually rejoiced? Most of the time when we go through difficulties, the first thing we do is we go running to God, asking God to remove it. But you remember when the Apostle Paul prayed to Jesus to have this thorn removed from his flesh, right? He prayed three times. And this thorn that was in the flesh was a messenger of Satan. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians 12. I don't have it here, but you can write down 2 Corinthians 12. That that thorn was a messenger of Satan to torment him and to keep him from exalting himself. He prayed three times to have that thorn removed, and Jesus' response to him was that, my strength is perfected in your weakness. He would not remove the thorn, and so then Paul's response was, so then I rejoice. I rejoice in my weakness. And so we see here in the book of Romans, we have peace through God, but the effect of that peace is that we should be able to exalt, rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Whatever trials and tribulations we are going through, when we understand the peace that comes through the gospel, 
it should be a reminder to us that, thank God, I know God. Thank God, I know the Lord. And thank God that He is sovereign, that He is completely in control, because I know that whatever difficulties I'm going through, God is using this in order to build up character. He is building up perseverance. He is building up hope. And we know the hope of God never disappoints. If I were to ask you to raise your hand if you want to be more like Christ, I would imagine everyone who identifies themselves as Christian would say, yes, I want to be more like Christ. We often want to be more like Christ, and then we reject the way that God actually seeks to make us more like Christ. It is through trials and tribulations that He makes you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Because it says right here, those tribulations bring perseverance. That perseverance brings proven character, and that proven character brings hope. Not only that, but peace is actually a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit... This is talking about the fruit of our salvation, the fact that we are saved by God, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what should be coming out of our lives. This should be made manifest in our lives, that there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. But those fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Peace is not just what you have with God and other people, but peace should also be the fruit of the Spirit that is in you. It should be the fruit of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? That means that when people look at you, they recognize you as a person of peace. That you are at peace with other people, you are at peace with God, you are at peace. In fact, Romans 12, 18, Paul says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But not only that, but they should look at us, and even as we're going through difficulties, we want them to be able to see that there is a supernatural peace in us that cannot be described by any other means. And in fact, oftentimes, those difficult trials that you're brought into, and as I'm looking at the audience, I know some of you have been brought through specific difficult trials. Those difficult trials that you've been brought into is actually God's way of helping you to grow in peace. And so we grow to be more like Christ. We grow and we show these fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, this peace is a peace that surpasses all comprehension. And it not only surpasses all comprehension, but it guards us. Now, this passage, Paul talks about prayer. Verse 1, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's a great command right there. Rejoice always in the Lord. Be thankful each and every day that you are in the Lord. Be thankful each and every day. If you have put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, be thankful each and every day that Jesus was sent into this world to die on the cross so that you can have a salvation that can never be taken away. Rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice. And when we see words repeated like that, it is a point of emphasis. Paul wants you to rejoice because that is the proper response to salvation. Verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And then look at this, verse 6. You see, when you have peace, verse 6, we can obey this command, be anxious for nothing. Now, obviously, we're going to be anxious in this life. This life is going to test us. We're going to feel the anxieties. We're going to feel the anxieties of loved ones who are sick. We're going to feel the anxieties of some of the own, our own physical trials that we go through, the challenges with our children. We're going to go through anxieties with, with difficult relationships with our loved ones. Anxieties in the world at the workplace. Anxieties with people of the world. Anxieties like right now as we look around the world and we don't know where all this is headed. We don't know what's going to come out of this. But when Paul says be anxious for nothing, the idea is don't just let that anxiety rule you. 
be anxious for nothing. Do something about it. Instead of being anxious, here's what you can do in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So when you feel anxiety, don't just let your anxiety rule you. But it says to be anxious for nothing, let your request be made known to God. And look at verse 7. Here is the result. And the peace of God. This is a different kind of peace than simply salvation because Paul is already addressing believers. He is addressing believers to pray to God with regards to your anxieties, to pray to God about the things that you are worried about. And he says, and when you give it up to God, verse 7, here is the result, that the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing promise. This is a peace of God, once again, that is not the peace that the world can provide. It is not a peace that can come from any man, any situation. It is a peace of God that surpasses all comprehension, all understanding. And that peace not only surpasses comprehension and understanding, but it guards your hearts, it guards your minds in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be prepared for the spiritual war. This is what it means to understand and recognize and to meditate and to rejoice in the peace of God, knowing that it protects you in the spiritual war against the attacks of the evil one. This is a wondrous peace that just surpasses all comprehension. And he goes on to say, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Just in the last verse, he talks about the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And here he's talking about the God of peace who will be with you. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding is made possible because the God of peace is with you and in you. And he wants to strengthen you. He wants to strengthen you for this spiritual war. But it does require us to have perspective. It does require us to remind us of these wonderful truths. And if you're not doing it now, I would recommend every morning when you wake up, think about what's the first thing that you do. Are you simply checking messages? Are you just turning on the TV? Are you just getting some food to eat? Right from the beginning of the morning, spend some time in prayer. Spend some time. Write down a list of things that you know that you should be thankful about from God. And just as we're going through the armor of God and learning these truths, review the notes that you're taking from these messages and remind yourself of the glories that have been made known to us through God, the, all the reasons for us to be thankful. And then pray upon that. Pray that that would guard you and that that would guide you through the rest of the day. Remind yourself often. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. You see, we as Christians, we're not on cruise control. You know, the temptation of people in this world, the temptation of people today is to find the easy way. It's why when you turn on TV, you see get-rich-quick schemes all the time. People want a quick and easy way to get rich. They don't want to put in the work. They don't want to exercise the discipline towards it. And it's the same thing spiritually for us to really reap the, the fruit of spiritual growth. It takes discipline. It takes work. It takes engagement. There is no easy button that you can push and suddenly become more like Christ. It doesn't work that way. The spiritual war, the imagery of spiritual war is here for very good reason. Because it is hard. It is going on every day. And we have to mentally and proactively engage in it constantly. But as we think about this message of peace that obviously prepares us, that helps guard our hearts and our minds, we also want to look for those opportunities to share it. Now, I had mentioned that the, really the force of Paul's statement when he talked about the feet that were prepared with the preparation of the gospel of peace, I had talked about that that's more of a defensive posture, but even in a defensive posture, we should always be ready at any given time to help share the gospel with others when given those opportunities. 
You see, peace gives us opportunities to proclaim peace. And in this passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, in this passage, we don't see the word peace mentioned, but we see it described. You see, if you have a peace, you're not going to feel anxiety. You're not going to feel fear. You're not going to be troubled. And Peter here, verse 13, he says this, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? He's encouraging Christians that even as you see persecution of Christians, just devote yourself to doing what is good. And if you devote yourself to doing what is good, who is going to harm you? And the answer to that, obviously, is that if you devote yourself to doing good, then generally speaking, you're not going to be harmed. People are not going to harm you. But look at this, verse 14. He says this, But even if, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So in other words, if you are zealous to do what is right, people won't harm you, but if they do harm you, you will be blessed. You know what that's called? That's called a win-win situation. And that is only possible through Christ. That is a win-win situation. And he goes on to say at the end of verse 14, and do not fear their intimidation. So you already get an idea of what was going on at that time. The world was intimidating Christians, putting fear in Christians. But Peter here is saying, you need not fear their intimidation. You need not be afraid. You need not be troubled. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Instead, do this, verse 15, but instead sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This idea of sanctify, make God holy. Make Christ holy. In your hearts, regard the Lord Jesus Christ as holy. And what does that mean in this case? Well, he goes on to tell us to make Christ holy in our hearts means always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. This is saying that even in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials, when people look at you and they see hope, they might be tempted to ask, where do you find that hope? And you can't have that hope unless you understand and feel that peace that resulted from your salvation. These are the opportunities that we're being given, that you are always ready to make a defense. Again, a defense is the same kind of idea that Paul is talking about with the spiritual armor. We are defending ourselves, but here we're making a defense of everyone who asks you to explain, in essence, what is this hope that you have? How is it that you can be so peaceful? I'm reminded of a young lady named Nicole Green back at the prior church that Alice and I were at. She had contracted cancer in her early 30s, and she had five kids already. Five kids, all, all of them young. Um, I believe all of them were under the age of uh, five or six. Five years and younger, but she had contracted cancer and it was terminal. There was going to be no curing her. But she was being ministered to by nurses trying to prolong her life by whatever way possible. She's in there and one of the nurses is ministering to her and the nurse was clearly just, just shook up by what she's going through you know, the, the news that had been given to her. And Nicole Green reached out, held the nurse by the arm, and said, God is good. And he ended up telling my pastor, Bill Shannon, when Bill Shannon visited with her, she said, I have great news because the doctor had just gotten through telling her that unless a miracle, unless they come up with some sort of miracle, she's going to die within a few weeks. Bill Shannon goes to speak to her, and she says, I got great news. Great news. And she says, yes, in a few weeks I'm going to be healed, whether it's going to be by miracle or whether it's going to be spiritually to be with God forever. And we've seen fires raging all around us, especially in the state of California, the state of Oregon. And I am reminded of another family that had lost their home to a fire um, during one of these uh, crazy fire seasons, uh, probably about 10 or 15 years ago. Their house had burned down. And the response of the family who were believers was that, well, the good news is that our permanent home is still safe. That is the eternal mindset. That is the peace that surpasses all understanding, surpasses all comprehension. That is the peace that's going to guard your hearts and minds and prevent you from getting lost in these day-to-day -day struggles that we have in this life. 
That is the peace that's going to prevent you from getting lost in even some of the more serious problems that you may have with your friends or family members or difficulties at your workplace, difficulties with your physical trials. Because at the end of the day, I can say this, that the peace of God, I would rather have peace of God and a lack of peace with everyone in the world than to have peace with everyone in the world but not have peace with God. Because the peace with God is eternal. Whatever peace we have with the world is temporal. Whatever difficulties we have with the world is temporal. And so just to remind you of the peace and all of its implications, what we just covered, this peace, it was preached from the very beginning. We saw that in Acts. This peace comes only from the Lord. We saw that from the words of Jesus Christ in John 14. This peace allows us to exult or rejoice in trials. We saw that in Romans 5. This peace is a fruit of the Spirit. This peace surpasses comprehension. It guards our hearts and our minds. And this peace will give us opportunities to proclaim peace. This is how you are prepared by the gospel of peace. But it is up to you to appropriate that peace. If you have peace with God, it is up to you to make sure you remind yourself of that peace and allow yourself to be strengthened in your resolve, strengthened in your hope, strengthened through whatever difficulties that you go through in this world. And for those of us who are here this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been hearing a lot of gospel truths during this hour. And let me just take this moment right now to ensure you that there is no peace in this world that matches the peace of God and eternity in heaven. You see, you can enjoy peace in this world. You can enjoy peace with people. You can enjoy peace in many secular ways. But if you don't have peace with God, you're going to spend an eternity in the lake of fire. You see, that's why God sent His Son into the world. He sent His Son into the world to express His own love for the world. He sent His Son into the world in order to die on the cross. He sent His Son in the world, into the world to be able to pay for the sins that you and I deserve to pay forever in the lake of fire. But when Jesus Christ paid for those sins, He provided us with the opportunity that if we repent of those sins, if we believe in Him, if we believe Him as Lord and Savior, if we believe that His work paid for our sins, that we can find forgiveness of sins through Him and Him alone, if we repent of our former manner of life, if we we commit ourselves to following after Christ, it doesn't mean that we are perfect. That's why we're here at church. That's why we come every single week. The call of the church is to build up one another, to help encourage one another, to pray for one another. That is the ministries that we engage in throughout the week. And so it doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that you now are following a different direction. You are now calling upon Jesus Christ as your Lord as your master, the one that you follow after. But it's your belief in Him, your belief in what He has done that ultimately provides salvation. And so it's not hard at all. You just need to recognize your need for Christ and confess Him as your Lord and Savior. Believe in Him, and you will have salvation. And for the rest of us, I would just encourage you to contemplate, to meditate, Write down a list. Think about these things each and every day. Wake up in the morning. Review your notes. Remind yourself of the peace that has been granted to you and how that peace should help you endure the trials that you go through. Because remember, God brings about those trials actually for good purposes, whether we understand it fully or not. Let us pray.